Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm Bob Mata, your host, and today we're joined by a very, very special guest as the guest host of today's episode, and that is Darren Wood. How you doing, D? Hey, Bob. I'm well. How are you? I'm great, man. So what we're going to do in this particular episode, this is what we're going to basically call our recap of the first half of Tunnel Vision Season 2. So uh, you're going to drive the bus here, man. I mean, cool uh, with that? Yeah, I don't have a license, but you know, these kids are these kids will be fine. <laughs> Shake them All right, bit. good, good. So, yeah, so like real quickly, Darren and I actually tried to record this down at uh, the True Crime Podcast Festival. We did a Spotify Live. We we did record it. Uh, apparently, the paranormal roundtable discussion that was uproariously hilarious, and they were laughing uh, fanatically back there behind us, which bled its way into our sound, so Darren and I thought it might be a good idea if we just kind of did it from scratch for y'all so you could actually hear us. The last one wasn't, wasn't very, um, it wasn't timed very well as far as what we were discussing. Yeah, I mean, we had some pretty uh, serious dark shit going on, and uh, then it would, like, just, like, booming laughter through the walls, so, yeah, it was poorly timed, to say the least. So um, we got we got a bit of information to cover here, Bob, because you know there's a lot of information. We do, we do, and and just kind of like going into this before I hand you the keys, uh, it was it's different in the sense that you, in terms of Gacy, had a, like a pretty good idea where we were going on a weekly basis, whereas this case you're not as familiar with. Uh, you know, especially in the first half of it, we haven't used nearly as many recordings. It's mostly been me kind of narrating through the scripts and, and kind of giving you the blow by blow. So you're learning things basically the same time. Well, a little bit before our listeners, Not but, much. you know, on a week to week basis, you're kind of hearing the story. Yeah. So has that been difficult for you or not really? Or I mean, what? it's, it's been different i don't know about difficult i haven't um i think the second half going forward i'll be able to kind of look ahead a little better okay because you know with, with gacy we any new information we both learned simultaneously you know right this exactly. is just that's not an option for this case yeah exactly you, you know when we get to uh interviewing some of the folks that we'll be interviewing in the second half of the season then you know obviously you'll have a heads up on that but i mean from me personally i kind of like surprising you well i, I can see how with you i, I kind of like i can see how like um you know you it's better from your perspective than from mine you know yeah for sure it, it's like yeah it, i mean i i just kind of enjoy like unveiling the story on you kind of the same way that it's happening for the listeners i mean to me i i think it's kind of cool but you know i mean i guess from your perspective i would think that it would be like, are you ever anxious to kind of hear what what's coming next, or not really? Well, no, totally. Work. I am. I also, it's like, I mean, I know, like, I have like the gist of what happened. You know what I mean? It's not, there's no like huge bomb drops for me. It's just like the actual, yeah. the characters, the more in depth character sort of um, development. No, it's it's, it's interesting. I've, I've enjoyed it. Good. All right. So um, let's let's get rolling, man. Because, like you said, we do have a lot to cover, uh, and believe it or not, we are just about wrapping up the first set of homicides so uh i think we've got one more episode and i i'm gonna move on from that and then um you know we're gonna hit the 
second set of homicides and then you know it's going to be time for allison and my father and i to enter the story so that that's where it's going to be going i always enjoy interviews with your father so yeah they're good and you know not not to say that i won't enjoy um with al i just haven't interviewed her before so yeah she'll 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 be good no she'll doubt. be good no I have, doubt. Uh, yeah, she she's got a pretty uh, firm grasp on the law, so uh, I think <laughs> right. from that perspective, people pe- people will enjoy it. Um, all right, so what do you got for me, man? So I thought, I mean, I figured we start off with obviously with Thomas Hunter and Shirley Sherman. Okay, you know, it's just as horrible and, and tragic as that was, um, yeah. and you know, still is. It's brutal. Um, really, the, first, like the the biggest question at, from that scenario is who was the target. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, no question. Like if 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 there's one question that you could definitely have answered, really from this whole thing so far, I would want to. Other than obviously who did it or you know whatever, who was the target of this first yeah, set of murders? Absolutely, man. And you know, and I have a I have a hard time ever thinking it was Thomas Hunter. It just in my brain, it just couldn't have been. It seems unlikely, you know, and when we got the case, which I'll, I'll get into more when we kind of get to that point in the story, but, um, you know, that became the number one question for us as well. You know, like if we can figure out who the actual target was, well, then that takes the Hunter Sherman murders out of the entire narrative of the, the you know, the, the state purporting that it was the Creighton killings, you know what I mean? Because that, that, Thomas was the link because of his relationship with his father working at Creighton, you know, so if, if that was the case that it was Shirley, then clearly it was two different people, um, you know, with two entirely different motives. So yeah, that, that, that's always haunted me as well. And, you know, and when we focused our investigation that we did after we were retained, you know, we really focused on the Shirley Sherman angle because much like everyone that was related to Thomas felt they believed that it was, you know, somebody that was targeting Shirley. So, I mean, there's no question totally. about that early on. No, I mean, his, both Claire and um, Jeff Hunter were like undeniably and sort of like very outspoken about the fact that they knew it was Shirley as the, as the target. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I thought about that for a minute and it's like, I mean, what mother and brother could ever think it was their 11-year-old son or, or, you know, sibling? There's something to do with her. Are you feeling resentment towards her because of that? Um, not, not towards her. I don't know. Just, I feel like, you know, if she had... I, I feel that if they hadn't hired her, my little brother would still be alive, to put it simply. And I've said that over and over to several of you. Why Thursday? You know, I know you have to look at everybody. I know you're looking very extensively at Thomas and his games and his phone and all that. But in my mind, I was gone all week. Thursday is the only day she comes. So if they were after him, why Thursday? Mm-hmm. Why Thursday? Considering that there was just no evidence whatsoever of any kind of, um, you know, sexual angle to the case, meaning that, that Thomas wasn't sexually assaulted, you know, that kind of takes out like a rather huge element that you're looking at 
in terms of child killers because usually the the perpetrators are at least somewhat sexually motivated in terms of their actions you know so that not being part of the scenario um based on the evidence you know it, it became quite befuddling as to what possible motive somebody could have to kill an 11 year old kid i was with you on that it, it was um you know that was something that we really really grappled with pretty heavily in the beginning of the case and throughout the case to be honest with you i mean there's still there's still no definitive answer you know there isn't i agree you know because like that whole thing with and and when we get to uh, we're going to interview the criminologist that we ended up retaining for the case, and his name's Brent Turvey. And, um, you know, that one of the questions that I posed to him is, is the mindset of a killer, it's just a different mindset entirely to, to go into a premeditated murder with the concept that you're going to murder a child. It's, it's just different. Totally. It just is, man. There's no... There's no way to to frame it that they're the same thing or that, you know, it I mean there's there's a reason his age is mentioned every time that this comes up because it just makes it that much more tragic and that much and it's the same for everyone even the person that kills them you have to be yeah, you know. Absolutely. And and you know, the state was acutely aware of the fact that there was a a child that was murdered and that that of course was um, not to say that they didn't give focus to the other victims, but certainly Thomas Hunter being murdered was the primary focus of the state's case. You know, I mean, that was, you know, because there's that element of, and I say it all the time in, in the pod that, you know, essentially when you break it down to, um, you know, two attorneys that are arguing in a, in a case and you've got the state and you've got the defense, typically what's going on is you've got two sides telling a story and, you know, each side is trying to convince the jury that their story is the correct version of it. So, you know, the state obviously realizing that they're going to be able to use the fact that a child was murdered in order to really kind of wring the pathos out of the situation and really be able to hit a nerve with the jurors. You know, they were well aware of that and they, they took advantage of that fact. You know, so, I mean, that, that was a major thing for us to overcome. Isn't that a little exploitative? I mean, yes and no. I mean, I, I get it. It's the same thing. Like, as you were talking about how you, you can see where they were coming from, like in terms of the hunters believing that it was really, you know, I, I, I know why they do it, you know, and, and yes, you know, for breaking it down to, you know, just kind of brass tacks. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit exploitive, um, in terms of, you know, understanding that that's got a certain purpose that it's going to serve in terms of the jurors hearing it and feeling it. And really, you know, kind of building that, oh, somebody's got to pay for this. You know, somebody just killed an innocent child. Somebody's going down on this, you know. So they, they were, like I said, acutely aware of that. But, um, you know, nonetheless, they still have to prove it, you know. And, and we kind of get into that a little bit, like earlier in the season when, you know, we were talking about Derek Moist, the cop from Omaha. And, you know, the order of the murders, who, who was killed first. And, you know, we touched on that, um, quite a bit. And, and that was something that we'll, we'll get into again, as we get into the trial. Um, you know, that was quite a war. I mean, to this, to this day, he says it's, it's Thomas. Yeah, I know. Which just doesn't make any sense because, you know, we had the eyewitnesses. If we're to believe Paul Medine, you know, in terms of what he saw then, you know, that doesn't make any sense. 
you know, because he saw the stranger, as we refer to him, like ringing the doorbell and talking to Shirley Sherman. Correct. Correct. And it was definitive. But doesn't Moist like uh, sort of argue that Medine actually saw him talking to Thomas Hunter? Yeah, he said that he confused the blue bandana that Shirley Sherman was wearing when she answered the door, who was, I think, between 5'6 and 5'7, maybe even 5'8. Uh, Thomas was five foot tall. He, he claimed that he confused a blue bandana for Thomas's muscled hair, like his muscled up or, you know, brown hair. So that just never held water for me. You know, I mean, he, he wouldn't even I mean, have seen a child beyond the stranger standing in the doorway. You know what I mean? He just wouldn't have seen right. him. So, I mean, other than blue and brown, both starting with B. Right. They don't really have a whole lot in common. Yeah, that, that's kind of where that ends for me. You know? <laughs> right. And we also know that Thomas was down, you know, on his Xbox. You know, that, that's a fact. Like, that's, that was his... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like time-stamped, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what he did. You know, they, they know that he was on there. They were able to see that he was online and he was gaming. And, you know, and then they, they know that the game was paused at some point. So, you know, and the, kind of the way that we handled how we believe that it went down, um, you know, we didn't get into the, the, the horrible details of the killings, but um, I didn't think we needed to, so... Uh, but you know, I, I think that's how it played out. I think Shirley's the one who answered the door. Um, you, you know, we have Claire Hunter saying that Thomas was instructed never to answer the door if they weren't home or the phone for that matter. So, right. And, Cause and, he, had his, he had his own phone. Exactly. And Claire was pretty confident that, that Thomas would not have been the one to answer the door if it rang, you know, because it's like, as a homeowner, if, and I could tell you, like, if I get an unusual doorbell ring. You know, I'm I'm immediately irritated. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah, like totally. it, if it's not one totally. of my friends or family saying that they're heading over and you know, my doorbell rings, I'm assuming it's a, a salesperson. Yeah, 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 call before you come. Yeah, exactly. It's just common courtesy. So, you know, anytime that a doorbell rings like kind of out of the blue, you know, it's either somebody you're certainly not anticipating it's gonna be somebody there to murder you, but um, you know, e either way. You know, you're not running to, to answer. Like, it, typically, I don't even want to answer the door. <laughs> like, if it wasn't for my dog, right. I wouldn't answer the door, but he's going, like, insane. <laughs> just, to shut, just to shut Nook up? Yeah, exactly. I just have to shut the guy up. So, you know, I'll go over there. And then I let him, like, hang behind me, so I just poke my head out. I'm like, oh, I got to go. My dog's going. Nuts. You know, so he's he's a great excuse to shut the door real quickly. He, I mean, he's, he is known for uh, for jetting. He is. He's a runner, man. Dude's a runner. And, and he's, he's a track star. He, he's tough to wrangle too. Once he's out, man. In addition to Paul Medine um, being a witness, we have um, uh, several more. My, I don't know if favorite's the right word, but the one I enjoyed editing the most was uh, Mary Rowellfinger. Yeah, Mary. Because she makes a statement that she is not the Gladys Kravitz type, which we I ended up naming an episode. Correct. Because it's such a ridiculous thing to say. Right. It's exactly what she seems to be <laughs> to me. You're right. Exactly. I mean, she's sitting here telling the guy how she's standing and watching out the window, um, basically taking notes on what's going on, and but she's not the Gladys Kravitz type, like in the same breath. All right. So for, for those in our audience that are a little shorter in the tooth, uh, why don't you tell them who exactly is Gladys Kravitz, in case that reference was lost on people. It's a bewitched reference, um, and it was the neighbor who watched everything they did and, and basically involved herself in all scenarios. She was very nosy. She was a very nosy neighbor. Very, very nosy. <laughs> yes, she was. 
So, yeah, no, I, I agree. And, you know, and Rommelfanger, um, you know, pretty diligently watched as the, you know, this little gray vehicle pulled up and parked. And, you know, to the extent where she kept an eye out on this person parking on, on the block, which, you know, again, I, I always try to relate to things in terms of my own personal experiences. And while I'm not sitting in my front window watching, you know, my, my kids will notice, like if there's a car that kind of doesn't belong in the area, like my, my 16 year old Cameron texted me a few weeks ago. She's like, there's a weird white car sitting out in front of the, you know, the house. I'm like, well, I'm, you know, don't worry about it. I'm sure it's nothing. I'm like, if they ring the bell, don't answer, <laughs> you know, but right. So, you know, I, I don't think it's unusual for people to notice if something's off in a neighborhood. No, absolutely not. But I know this every, I mean, I try to notice every, every little thing. So she clearly, you know, keeps an eye out on what's going around or what's going on around her neighborhood. So as far as, you know, her just kind of keeping an eye on the vehicle, she then sees, you know, a person get out of the vehicle and then she, you know, she proceeds to not only watch, but she like changes floors. So she, she goes upstairs so she can get a better vantage point to continue watching this person as the person. The old like, bird's eye view, you know? The old bird's eye view, exactly. And then, you know, she watches as the person turns the corner and walks out of sight. And then uh, I think, if I'm correct, that at some point she had to leave and uh, she left the house to run a few errands with her intention on getting the plate. Uh, you know, getting the plate number when um, she was coming back, but by the time that she returned, she, you it's know, the, the, the car was gone, so um, she missed out on that. Was she picking up her kids or something? Yeah, yeah, I think she was picking up her kids, and uh, she had stopped for ice cream because they were, um, you know, begging her for ice cream. So it, it, it's, well, ice cream is delicious. I mean, it is. That can't be denied. Ice cream is fantastic. Ice cream sandwiches? Come on. Oh, dude, is there really anything better? It's tough. So yeah, she she was uh she was interesting and you know, and it wasn't just that. It was when they went back to her. So when we kind of started moving into some of the other potential suspects as the call started coming into the tip line, you know, Adrian Lapore was a guy that a lot of people when the the composite sketch was released said man, this guy looks a lot like the guy in the sketch. So, you know, there were multiple people. Which means if, it, if, if Adrian Lepore was the guy they're drawing, they did a great job. If it was anybody else, then that composite sketch is terrible. Yeah, it, it, especially if it was Anthony. Because Anthony in 2008, he was big. Like, I think he was probably at his biggest in terms of weight, you know. Um I, I think he was probably, you know, upwards of 270, 280. At the, like, he was really, he was heavy. I think that was his heaviest point, um, you know, and so. Like, so something that we were looking at some pictures recently, and I noticed that one of the pictures was stamped uh, March 2008, and it was um, him with his family in New Orleans. Right, exactly. Which I thought was kind of and he, weird. He was big and his face was very full, you know, like many of us yeah. when we put on weight, you know, it goes right to my face first, D, you know, my, like I get, uh, yeah, I get extremely fat faced when I have, uh, when I got some extra weight on me, man, you know, um, 
So, you know, and it, it same holds true for Anthony. Like he had a very cherubic round face when he was at his heaviest. And, uh, I did not get that vibe off that, that sketch at all. Um, that just wasn't how this person was described. Yeah. And, and oddly enough, and I, I'm not going to give a spoiler on it, but, um, all those eyewitnesses were called at trial and I'm not going to tell you whether or not they were able to identify Anthony Garcia, who was sitting in front of them in the courtroom as being the person, irrespective of the composite sketch. I'm talking, okay, here, here's the guy that they're saying did it, and he's sitting in the courtroom. Can you identify that person as the person that you saw that day? I'll leave that for down the road. But, um, you know, it, it, <laughs> it's, it, not, it's not really a lot of mystery left there um, with the way that yeah. you described the question. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, but the, but the... You know, the composite sketch, oddly enough, everyone that, that had a hand in describing to the sketch artist what they thought the guy looked like, none of them ever believed that that composite sketch looked like the person they saw. So, yeah. you know, I mean. And they couldn't really, they couldn't really like uh, pinpoint why. They just knew that it wasn't the person that they saw. They couldn't. I mean, as, as a person that, like, I understand that. I can't, I can't actively or like properly describe anyone. And also, I will never know who you're talking about based off of a description to me. Yeah. I mean, we, we like, did who? that in the... This is what we right. have names. Right. You know, he's got, a, he's got a broad nose. He's got a, you know, a thin nose. He's got a, a pointy chin. He had short hair. Long, you know what I mean? It's like, how do you describe somebody's eyes other than like they're narrowly <laughs> apart? Beady. Yeah, they're beady. You know, it's like, it's, it's tough. And that's a real. I'm even impressed form. when someone makes like those little avatar emoji things that looks like them. I'm like, how the hell did you do that? I know it's. I weird. can't even make my own. Yeah, I can't. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, I didn't think the composite looked anything like Anthony Garcia, um, other than the fact that I think Anthony may have had shorter hair at that point. You know, because he went through many hair phases. Uh, in terms of the photographs that I saw from, you know, going back, dating back to like 2000 up until, you know, the date of arrest, I was seeing like family photographs that his family gave us, you know, and, and he had many, many different hairstyles, um, you know, but I think in 2008, maybe though, you know, I, I thought his hair was a little longer on top and that, that composite had him as kind of a buzz cut, which um in 2013 when garcia was arrested he he had a he had a rather short buzz cut type hairstyle but um it grew up for trial it, it did you know along with his beard you know something that's the most key piece of evidence um thus far it would have to be something to do with joy blanchard yeah because yeah. um you know she was murdered the same horrific way that Shirley and Thomas were. Right. Prior to Shirley and Thomas. Right. Five months. So if, if, like, if you had to say um, on a scale of one to 10, one being very little and 10 being, you know, the most imaginable, how much effort would you say that the Omaha Police Department put into y'all not finding out about Joy Blanchard? I would say I'd go, uh, you know, an 11 because when we get the discovery, um, they had completely whitewashed and, and I'm not talking, you know, when lawyers get, um, police reports from, uh, the state and discovery, if there's things that they don't want seen, like sometimes they'll, 
they'll they call it redacting and they'll use like a black marker and they'll just black it out so that you can't see what it is like a lot of times that relates to um phone numbers addresses things of that nature that are more private uh and sensitive information they'll black that out even though you know as defense attorneys we have every right to talk to every witness so they shouldn't be doing that for us but they do anyway just to be shitty um they can't make it make it easy for you you know yeah of course you know when we get we end up getting the the hunter binders which was 15 binders with approximately you know anywhere between 1500 to 2000 sheets of paper per binder it was a lot you know it was a lot of that's stuff that's like 22500 pages yeah i mean and and that's not including the brumbeck binders you know so we got those and then that and that's of course not including the audio and video that we got as well and the, the photographs and things of that nature so it, it was a ton of evidence and you know allison is digging through and i can't remember if she googled like she googled like the kind of the scenario like i think that's what she said if i I remember correctly yeah and we'll ask her when we get her on but you know she was the one who discovered that the blanchard thing had taken place like you know five months earlier which in the scope of you know if you've got somebody kind of serial killing people you know that that's about right that seems about right in terms of the timing of it and it was a couple of miles away you know omaha is not a giant city you know it's it's rather small um you know so you've got the situation where you've got an intruder using weapons from the home okay which when you start to think about that in terms of intruders or somebody that's that's committing a premeditated murder to decide that i'm going to go to the home without a weapon and my 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 mo is going to be that i'm going to secure a weapon somehow from the kitchen and use that weapon to kill whoever's in the house is unusual it's very it's very unusual yeah, these, are, these aren't like uh botched robberies you know what i mean this isn't this is was only always going to be a murder both both cases exactly exactly and and you know so you have to assume with both of them you know, because of the fact that police didn't uh, see any kind of indicia of a burglary or that somebody had come there to rob the homes and take uh, belongings or things of value, like none of that was missing from either of the homes. So that leaves you to believe that exactly as you said, can only have been one purpose of coming to the house, which was to kill the people inside or the person inside, which is ultimately what happened. And then when you see so you've got a, a a perpetrator who's coming in using weapons from the home both happen to be knives both are then embedded and left in the neck you know which is again when we have brent turvey on that was we consider the allison and i consider that to be a signature um you know because it's very unusual well i mean it, it sort of is you know it's what, what else exactly would it be? you know because it, it's it's less unusual for a, a knife to be left like say for instance in the chest or if somebody's stabbed in the gut um like it's less unusual for it to be left in in that position but to be left in the neck protruding all the way up to the the hilt all the way up to the handle you know that that's very very unusual and, and brent turvey you know in, in the 1500 cases he's looked at and evaluated throughout the course of his career had never seen it and this guy's done a ton with the cartel you know and and those guys commit some pretty nasty murders you know um and he 
signature, yeah, signature stuff. stuff. And he had never seen it. You know, he'd seen Columbia neckties. He'd seen all kinds of stuff, had never seen that. So in, in Turvey's mind, he was adamant that it was the same offender, you know? Um, so. Which would sort of lead to why the state went to such uh, lengths to make sure that y'all didn't know about it. Just try to keep y'all from. Absolutely. Cause what, you know, when that's, you know, I, I got a little diverted there, but you know, the tangent, but you know, the reality is when we get the discovery, everything's gone. There's nothing, no mention of Blanchard. And then when Allison finds out that the Blanchard thing happens, she starts digging through all the paperwork and we find one uh, FBI report that lists that they were at some point early on after Hunter and probably for quite a while um, that they were investigating Hunter and Blanchard as the same perpetrator. But, but as far as all the reports and you guys, when we're going through the reports and I'm reading narratives or, you know, I'm, I'm creating the scripts, you know, I'm going directly for the report. So there was no mention of Blanchard ever in any of, in any of the reports. I think somewhere down the road, there's a mention of Charlie Simmer, who's somebody that we will get into later in the season. But, um, and, and I talked about him in one of the episodes. And he was the uh, nephew of Joey Blanchard. And he, he seemed to be the, the primary suspect for Omaha PD. You know, because the thing is for Omaha, it's very simple. If it's, if it's Anthony Garcia, Joy Blanchard does not fit into the narrative. You know, quite simple as that. Like she has. What was it? I was about to ask you what, what Joy Blanchard's connection with Creighton is. Zero. That's why exactly. it didn't work for them, you know, so that, that, that was not like, you know, when, when they create the narrative that it's the Creighton killings, Joy Blanchard does not fit at all. So they took painstaking efforts to remove her everywhere from every report, it, it, you know, and they had to have retyped it because I'm not, you know, every I didn't get, single page, right? Every, every report that she would have been mentioned in had to have been retyped, you know, I mean that, that's, Did you give an answer to my one to 10? Though, did you ever put a number on it? Yeah, I gave it an eleven, man. You know, okay, it was it was. I couldn't remember. It was, eleven makes it was sense. Above, they went above and beyond the Call of Duty because that's nowhere in the Call of Duty. <laughs> that's not their. That's not their duty. Correct. That, that's correct. Okay, so um, let's see here. It just this part of the story always shocks me so much that I'm like, it throws me off a little bit. I'm like, I can't. Obviously, I can believe it because like. It's rare that I'm shocked by things that the state is willing to do anymore, but this is a big one. So let's talk about other persons of interest. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so as we kind of dug through, obviously us thinking that Shirley was the target, you know, the boyfriend. And just so you guys know, like Darren and I, you know, in order to avoid getting sued, you know, for the most part, you know, we've made the choice to keep people's names out, uh, their actual names out of the pod. You know, if you guys were to, after the season, kind of dig into newspaper reports um, and, you know, maybe Todd Cooper's book, I think some people are named. Um, but, you know, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, uh, it doesn't add anything to the story having their actual name listed. But, um, so we, we made that decision. Look, you know, better safe than sorry. 
Uh, and if they were of public record, meaning if they came out at trial, if their names came out at trial, I've got no problem stating their name in the pod because that's public record. So, but if they weren't, um, and there are things that I'm able to, to know simply by way of having the police reports, then we've decided to err on the, on the side of caution and not, not list their names. And, um, you know, because so you're saying his name's not really the Russian, his name is not really the Russian. And, um, huh. you know, uh, Kelly's joy or, uh, I'm sorry, Shirley's daughter, Kelly, her boyfriend's name is not really the boyfriend. <laughs> He's got an. I thought that's how she knew that he was her boyfriend. His yeah, name he, was the boyfriend. <laughs> He's got an actual name. Makes it easy. <laughs> so, but speaking of like outstanding citizens, you know, yeah, um, upstanding citizens. Kelly's boyfriend. Yeah, not a great guy. You know, I mean, at least not a great guy. At least on paper, I don't. I don't know him personally, other than what I've read about him in police reports. Uh, you know, it sounds like he had some, some drug issues, maybe a little and bit, a little violent, uh, had some v- little, little bit of a violent guy. Um, and you know, I think that that ultimately played into our mindset as liking him an awful lot as a potential guy for this. And you know, the bottom line is if he was enough of a violent guy for Shirley Sherman to think that he, you know, was somebody that she needed to really, really keep a close eye on and arm herself in order to protect herself from it was good enough for us to look into it very, very deeply. And yeah, um, I mean, when someone's, when someone's like, you know, uh, getting restraining orders and arming themselves and telling people that they're, you know, worried about this guy and that yeah. person ends up dying uh, brutally. Yeah. It's generally a decent idea to look in the direction of the person that she'd warned everyone about. Yeah, exactly. You know, so in, in fairness to OPD, they did look at him pretty hard. You know, I think that ultimately they kind of decided that, you know, his, his alibi, and I'm using finger quotes, if you could see my hands, you know, his alibi was a little bit shaky, right? So that's why I told you, um, oh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's iffy, you know, I, I wouldn't call that a rock solid alibi by what, any stretch what was of the his alibi again? That he was working, you know, but the problem was, is that his job was not, uh, as such as that he was like, say for instance, in a factory and you clock in, you clock out his, you know, he'd be going to a different work sites and he'd be working and, you know, and as days pass and they didn't have the best, uh, system for keeping track of who was at work and who wasn't in turn, you know, no one was clocking in and out. Uh, I think like maybe somebody would write a name down if they thought that he was working. So like there was, there was no way to really substantiate that he was there at the time. Um, Which is sort of a running theme in this, in this case. Yeah. Well, it gets even, it gets even more, uh, it gets even more suspicious as we get to the Russian, but with, with uh, the boyfriend, you know, when you've got the violence, you've got this apparent beef with Shirley and, and it all stems from him punching and breaking the jaw of her daughter she you know did not like the guy at all she did not want him anywhere around her daughter she did not want her uh, she did not want him around anywhere uh, around the property that her daughter was living in which happened to be right behind shirley's house because she owned uh, a house that was set back on the same lot Uh, i don't know if it was a little bigger than a coach house but um she didn't want the guy anywhere around it was simple and, you know, the word on the street was is that Shirley had been keeping tabs, meaning 
she had a little notebook where she was writing down names and license plates of cars that would come and go because she believed that the boyfriend was dealing meth and uh it was her intent because she was actually um kind of concerned uh kind of is probably an understatement she was extremely concerned about her granddaughter's well-being kelly's child um not so much from kelly but just because of the company that she was keeping um you know to the extent where she was potentially going to be going in and trying to gain uh, guardianship over that child and and Je- uh oops i almost said the guy's name and the boyfriend being what he was uh was certainly going to be a major factor in the case uh in terms of telling the judge look this is why this child can't be with her it's got to be with me so you know there were a lot of things going on with that you know there was certainly things that that could be considered motive um happening between shirley and the boyfriend that yeah i'm not like um super well versed in the the ongoings of of drug dealers but from what i understand they don't love when you keep track of what they're doing yeah especially especially when you have the intent of sharing it with the police 100 percent. you know i mean that like that that's probably the biggest (laughs) no-no yeah (laughs) yeah I, i think that you know any anything that can end up you know, with them uh, being in prison is going to be something that they're not going to be thrilled about for certain. So the boyfriend was definitely on the radar um, and, and that continued for us like pretty deep into the case. And, and we'll get back to him when we get into the DNA side of the case um, for the limited DNA that was found on uh, in the Hunter Sherman scene. Uh, but, you know, then we kind of shift to Adrian Lepore. Adrian had um who's deceased at this point by the way but uh you know he had a lot of people calling in saying it's like this guy a freak looks. accident right yeah it was a really strange bizarre accident he uh like work related or something it, like his gig was to clean out um train cars like like oil cars on you know for freight trains and like he was in there and and somehow it caught fire and he was trapped was like a horrific death um and that happened i think actually when we were in the midst of trying the case like so during, it was, during trial i believe yeah 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 so it was uh, a really terrible way for anybody to go but um you know in in adrian they didn't necessarily have that smoking gun evidence they had everything that kind of like made them think that he was somebody that they should really look at because he, he certainly resembled, uh, you know, the composite. And, and he also had some violent behavior. He also had some drug issues. And, um, you know, he, he had some violence in his past as well. And, and, you know, there were a lot of stories that were getting told to the police by various witnesses that, you know, he was a little bit off mentally. Now, whether that, that stemmed um, from his drug and alcohol abuse, most likely. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that it was problematic for him, you know, and, and I, and I think he also was suffering from some pretty substantial mental illness as well, um, which I think was probably exacerbated by his drug use in particular. So, you know, I, I mean, he was somebody, how that goes. yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of times they go hand in hand, you know, I think that there's an element of people, you know, wanting to self-medicate um to a certain extent uh only to realize that the you know the medicine that they've chosen to self-medicate with was not 
what they should be using to medicate themselves in order I think to kind that of maybe, write that shit. You know, I'm not sure that, that self-medicating with meth has ever really... Um, yeah, probably out, not. You know, probably anyone. not good. Probably not good. But I'm aware of at it's, least, you know? Yeah, I mean, me either. It doesn't sound like something that uh, would be real effective in terms of getting you uh, where you need to be mentally. But um, yeah, so, so Lepore... As a guy that they looked at pretty hard, you know, they also had a, a bunch of other tips with other people that, that, you know, people would randomly call the tip line and say, look, you know, this guy was at Creighton, this guy had issues, you should definitely look at this guy, you know, and, and then we, we get to, you know, Angie Alberico, who's that, uh, we mentioned her and early on in the pod and she was one of the HR people that worked over at Creighton and, you know, on the I think the day after or two days after the homicides took place at the Hunter and Sherman uh, homicides that, you know, she's calling the tip line saying, I've got a list of people that were employed at Creighton who like, she was, she was all over kind of that Creighton connection, like immediately, like to, for whatever reason, what did the cops do about it? So ultimately they ended up going over there. <clears throat> they get the list the list is like five or six individuals who had all been terminated from Creighton and all had, uh, you know, like a rather bumpy road uh, that they experienced over there and ended up leaving under not the best circumstances. So, you know, she gave those names. One of them happened to be Anthony Garcia. Uh, he did not, he did not spark their interest at that point. Like they ended up doing nothing at all. Like, no, no, didn't look into him at all. And when you look at, at Anthony Garcia and you look at the Russian in terms of their backstory, they're identical. They really yes, are. I mean, so. they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're, there's absolutely. I mean, but for me, an important piece of that is that the Russian was much later. Like, it was closer to the actual murders. Exactly. Yeah, because he, he was 2007, he got terminated at Creighton, as opposed to Anthony, who was 2001. You know, which obviously becomes like a major point that we attack at trial, but we'll get there when we get there. But, you know, yeah, that I also yeah, think that, it's important to mention that, that Garcia, while technically was terminated, they helped him get another job. They did. They did. It wasn't like uh, he just it, fired him and cut him loose and it was like, well, deal with it. We don't care about you anymore. Yeah, and it, as we heard in the last couple episodes, you know, Hunter really kind of went out of his way, you know, to not fire him. Like, they gave him multiple opportunities to kind of, you know, get his shit right, you know, kind of clean up his act a little bit and, you know, remain on with them. And, you know, I think it was either the, the last episode or the episode before where, you know, I mean, Hunter put him on, like, what I consider to be, you know, double secret probation. and. You know, said, look, man, I'm going to give you a checklist. You take care of this. We'll, we'll reconsider our, you know, our uh, decision to terminate you after the end of this year. And, you know, so Anthony was given that opportunity to do that. Um, you know, and, and I've, I've tried to really like articulate as well as I, as best I could, you know, kind of the tension that exists in like that environment. You know, and I, I think I've done a pretty good job in terms of kind of highlighting that you're dealing with egos in a situation like that. You know, doctors just have egos. They, they really do. Like as, as much as 
And, and the same is to be said with lawyers, but I think doctors are kind of like a whole different level uh, of ego. And especially when you're talking about surgeons, you know, just because they do get that God complex. That is something where, you know, that somebody's life hangs in the balance when they've got them cut open on their table, you know? So I, that's a real thing, you know? And you, when you're talking about residents, these are, these are young, young adults that have made it through medical school and, you know, for all intents and purposes, they are a doctor. Now you, you go through residency to be able to specialize in a particular area. And most states require that you have at least year one year of residency in order to you know get fully licensed. So, you know, I mean, residencies are are important because they do continue the education in a practical sense. Because much like law school, you know, I, I I wish that they had something like that for lawyers for young lawyers because you know they're really kind of forcing you into learning the practical side of practicing medicine. Whereas when you get out of law school, if you pass the bar, you're a lawyer. You're you a lawyer, know, yeah, and, and like, uh, have fun, I kind of kick you out of the Yeah, and, and, you know, and law school is is not where you go to learn how to actually practice law. Law school is where you go to learn black letter law so you can pass the bar exam. That's it, you know? It's like they, they have some clinics Which I hear is a pretty easy test. Yeah, it was pretty easy. It was uh, not stressful at all, that thing. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so, you know, so you've got egos that are in place you've got the factor that anthony is uh hispanic um in terms of his his uh country of origin um uh, you know so he's definitely a minority and and you know so he goes in kind of feeling like if people are picking on him his default is to go to the fact that he believes that they're discriminating him uh discriminating against him based on his his origins, you know, like that the fact that even if the person doing so is a minority themselves. Exactly. Exactly. So, and he seemed to have, um, which I'm not, I mean, obviously I'm talking about Dr. Uh, Butra and, you know, Butra just didn't have very good bedside manner in terms of her teaching style. She was, uh, she was very terse, you know, like if you didn't come in prepared, she let you know about it. She let you know that she was, irritated by the fact that this is something that you should have studied beforehand. You should have been prepared to do this. I shouldn't have to be teaching you what you should already know, you know, that that's your responsibility to know this information by the time you get back. And she didn't mince words, you know, so. She also struck me as someone who really wanted to be involved in this case, though. She, she certainly was that. She certainly seemed you know, like. Like, the, like, like she, she used the term survivor's guilt one time. It's really kind of urged me. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, she just really seemed intent on being the person they were interviewing as she was being interviewed. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, you'll see when we get down the road. I mean, she takes it upon herself to reach out to Omaha PD when she finds out that Garcia is on the radar. Like when we first got the case, he had not been charged with this other charge that I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to give a spoiler alert on it, but. He's charged with a subsequent crime um, that relates to Butra, and you know that was all her. So I mean, look, if, if there's no question, she had an, an axe to grind with him. She did not like him mouthing off to her. You know, she was in a superior position. She was certainly what what would be considered to be his boss. 
Um, and, and it, at the very least his, his professor, you know, or his faculty, um, you know, so she did not appreciate one bit the fact that he would, uh, talk back to her and get mouthy with her if, if he was feeling offended, because that, you know, that, that's how he would feel like, like if you're not used to dealing with somebody who teaches in that fashion with, with kind of the tough love fashion of teaching, it could be off-putting, you know? I mean, like I, I in particular would not deal with that very well. Like I, I wouldn't, I, I, I would either. Yeah. I just, I, I, you know, but I realized that early on, like that's one of the reasons I went to law school and that's one of the reasons I hung my own shingle because I don't like working for other people because I don't like them treating me like shit, you know? So, um, th that's, totally. that was something I realized very, very early on in my life. And I did things to avoid putting myself in that situation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, unfortunately for Garcia, he kind of had to go through the process. So when he runs into Butra, you know, they, they were, you know, they were oil and water, you know, they just did not mix at all. And, you know, that, that relationship just kept getting more and more sour as time progressed, you know, and then we're getting to, uh, kind of the end of, of Anthony's time at Creighton. But, you know, the last thing that we'll be getting into in the next episode is really what, you know, was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. But, um, you know, yeah, the boot, the Butra thing was certainly, uh, very, very problematic for Anthony. And, and I think that she played a huge part in getting the state, you know, just completely on board with the, the Creighton narrative as that case progressed, you know, like that, that was their missing piece. Like that, that little piece, which, you, you know, you guys will hear about is what really put the whole thing together in terms of a narrative for them. Um, you know, but as, as we break that case down and when we get to, you know, the holes in the state's case and, and especially in terms of timelines with respect to the, the Brumbeck killings, you know, we, we took great exception to a lot of the things that they were saying and a lot of the things that they were saying was definitive evidence, um, you know, but that's our job. So we'll, we'll see where the audience ends up on that. Is there anything huge that I haven't brought up you, you can think of? No, I mean, we've spent a lot of time on the Russian and um, he's a very polarizing figure for me. You know, I mean, I, I, that makes sense. Yeah. And I, I can tell you that, you know, as I sit here today, as we're recording this, I, I, I still don't know whether or not he was not involved. I, I, I don't know, you know, I mean, so, like in like, terms, like, so he was, he was, uh, obviously on the, the short list that was presented to Omaha PD. He had his, I guess, friend quote air quotes at the time, bring weapons um, over into, into Canada for him. He yeah. can't be placed, definitively be placed anywhere when the Sherman Hunter murders happen. Right. Um, you know, those, those are like a lot of big, he, had, he obviously had issues with, uh, you know, it's the same story as, as Garcia's. Same story. Same story, except like his are actually a little bit worse because, uh, I mean, there's multiple witnesses that were fellow residents and or faculty over there that were afraid to be in the room with them because they felt like he was a violent guy uh like like legitimately and it was like 
less than a year prior to it was like months prior to the murders right yeah exactly and and he is a guy he he is the one the one potential person of interest that makes the trip from 2008 to 2013 like he he's a guy that they're still looking at as soon as the brumbeck homicides take place they go right right back to the, the russian and they're looking at him heavily and i think you may have listened we'll to get into we will obviously get into that so he, he's a he's an interesting part of the story to be sure and and we will uh we will be diving into him uh on a continued basis for the foreseeable future he almost seems like he wants to be part of the story too you know he does like yeah. he makes the phone call too yeah i'm sorry which is very super bizarre phone call you know, just a really strange guy, you know, and, you know, um, I did want to touch, <laughs> I, you know, I, I've read some varying comments about my, my non-Russian, Russian, non-Russian accent. Uh, I was that doing. Yeah. Whatever, whatever that thing is. I, I tried to make an amalgam of like approximately 18 different languages, all kind of mashed up into one. So yeah, I've got a little Irish, a little, uh, Cockney, a little, Maybe a little Russian, maybe a little, you know, Spanish in there, or maybe a little Italian, <laughs> maybe just like a tad of Latin. I don't know. It's, it's a bit, uh, yeah. It's uh, it's uh, interesting. It's an interesting approach. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, you know, it's some like some of, some of the comments we got like on Facebook of like the the um like the gifts of people, the faces they were making, like must be the faces that I was making were like spot on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's yeah exactly i was, the way that uh, I was looking at you <clears throat> yeah it, it, well in in fairness to me because i need to delineate between who's talking right so i can't have everybody's you know talking the same i kind of have my gravelly harout voice you know i snap into that because i i have it's like little, it's a little bit deeper it's just a little bit deeper you know yeah i am uh yeah, i'm uh i'm doug harout so you know i like but if i've got me narrating in terms of you know not only am I doing two sides of a, an interview, but then I'm I'm jumping in. I have to kind of try to make it three voices where you can kind of understand which one of us is talking at a certain time, you know? So, um, yeah, but I, I enjoy this that is part. Uh, Doug, this is uh, Doug, Doug Harout. <laughs> it's, pre- it's a pretty good Doug Harout voice. Thanks, uh, bud. Yeah, man. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited to keep going with this thing, man, and I think... Uh, I think it's uh, I think it's going to be a, a, a really great story for people to hear. Tragic, obviously, but um, we'll do what we do. We'll we'll go as deep as we can get, and I, I think it'll be thought provoking. I think at the end of the day, um, you know, people because like I sit here today, D, things a mystery to me, you know, and I tried sure. the damn case, you know. To me, it's still still a mystery. I I don't know as my former client sits on death row i'm not sure if he did it you know i i just i i don't know we discussed earlier how i'm you know i have a little more information but definitely i don't have the details the way that i did uh with the gacy case and the the main reason that i i have enjoyed that approach um is because i've been able to keep garcia from being the guilty person that he that he ends up being you know right. the eyes of the law um, right. And as, as like, I don't even like, he's not really, it wouldn't make sense for him to be a suspect at this point in the story, as far as I'm concerned. 
Yeah, no, I, you know I, I mean? know. Yeah, and, and it was like when I was kind of sure at this point. At this he, point he's not story. right. I mean, we're going chronologically. So at this point, I mean, they had the opportunity. You know, they were given his name. You know, it was right there for him. You know, so while they're getting medals, you know, and and commendations for you know their amazing police work after Garcia's arrested and before he's convicted, which I was not happy about. Um, you know, for you mean for how all they tried him in the in the media? Oh no, I'm talking about how the cops were literally getting medals, you know, as officers of the year. When well, I'm sure that, you know, that was that was uh, put in the news. Oh, that yeah, for sure. It was absolutely. That's how I found out about it. Yeah, you that's, know, that's but what I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm sitting there like, pff, I'm like, you kidding me? That my guy hasn't even been convicted, and then I go to find out that you know he was right there for. If he's the guy, well, the Brumbeck shouldn't even be dead. You know, if they would have right. done their job. So you know, I mean, it's like, I'm not sure if they deserve medals, but um, yeah, we'll we'll get to all that good stuff. So. Yeah, I'm excited to keep going with you, man, and uh, we'll get this we'll get this story out to the people, you know. For but, sure. Um, so yeah, uh, I hope you guys have kind of enjoyed getting to hear D and I stretch our legs a little bit. Um, and as always, to all our to to all our patrons, we we love you guys. Um, Thanks, guys. guys. Yeah, we really we really do. And you know, even when you guys drop off, you know, um, we still love you. We, we don't love we you quite you. as much. We do. We forgive you. Con- for the most part, um, and we, we but know more important, yeah, but you know, but we always, we always have our arms open for you to come right on back, uh, because we do love that support. It means a lot to us, um, in a lot of different ways. And then, uh, you know, as far as all of you that listen to our pod on a weekly basis, or those of you guys who build it up to binge it, whatever the case may be. Or just sporadic, uh, yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah, whenever. Whenever's clever, man. You know, we absolutely love you. And as you know, what's the story? What's the story, D? How's that go? Bob, if they Bob, didn't exist. Bob's old. I'm old. And I think, without I think you, a weird, I think, I think I took the wrong, my takeaway from that <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I am old, but without, but without them, I'd just be an old man. Talk about an old case. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. That's definitely true. It, I mean, it is true. That's you know. Yeah, that's probably why we say it all the time, or why you do. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a catch, kind of a catchphrase at this point. So that's how we like to end it.